Hi, I'm Nicole Jardim, a certified women's health coach, also known as The Period Fixer, and you are listening to another episode of my podcast, The Period Party, which is what happens when you get the world's leading women's health experts unscripted, uncensored, and on the air. Think of it as girl talk gone menstrual. On The Period Party, we talk candidly about all of those off-limits topics, periods, hormones, vaginas, fertility, miscarriage, postpartum, and so much more. Join me and my guests each episode for fun, fresh, and truthful conversation, and let us help you develop a deeper understanding of how your body works. What's up, my wonderful podcast community? We're getting so close to the end of the year, and it's just so hard to believe that we're already here. I mean, who else remembers January 1st like it was last month? And yet, at the same time, it feels like a freaking lifetime ago. Anyway, two things. First, a reminder that my podcast is now on YouTube, so search for my name and subscribe for new episode releases each Monday. And second, I am taking a little break for the holidays and January, and we're going to be back with fresh episodes the first week of February. On today's show, I am talking to Brooke Scheller, a doctor of clinical nutrition and certified nutrition specialist in New York City. She specializes in using nutrition and functional medicine practices to help change your relationship with alcohol, heal your body from the damages of long-term drinking, and addressing chronic health concerns that overlap with regular alcohol use. She's also the founder of the Functional Sobriety Network and is currently authoring a book that will be published in late 2023. This is the first time I've dedicated a show to the effects of alcohol on our bodies and our hormones, and it's about time. Brooke is so knowledgeable, and she seriously delivers the goods. Come find us on Instagram and let us know what you think of the episode, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify. Thank you for being a part of my community. I am forever grateful to all of you, my listeners, for being here with me every week. Hi, Brooke. Thank you so much for being on the show. Hi, Nicole. I'm so happy to be here. This is a topic that I really love talking about. And your podcast, as we were just talking about, has been around for such a long time. So it's such a pleasure to join you today and to be a part of the podcast. Right. I know. I was just saying to you, we haven't actually talked about alcohol in a full episode before. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. It's going to be a juicy one, I think. Yeah. And now in the trends of sobriety and sober curious and I think it's a relevant topic for a lot of us, especially heading into this time of year as well. A hundred percent. I know. And I'd really actually love to talk about all of that stuff. And I would love to begin by talking about how you became interested in alcohol and how it impacts hormonal health and overall health in general. Yeah. So... I am by trade a doctor of clinical nutrition. I have several degrees in nutrition. I'm a certified nutrition specialist, and I have a background that ranges from working in clinical practice as a functional medicine nutritionist to working with startups and larger organizations on product development, marketing, wellness, supplements, health tech, et cetera. And I originally worked in clinical practice doing a lot of that custom testing where we would run blood work and stool testing and DNA, kind of you name it, we tested it. And from there, we would create a custom protocol of food supplements and other types of lifestyle modifications in order to support someone with whatever they were experiencing, right? I left clinical practice in 2017 and started working in the startup space and really enjoyed bringing the innovation to the nutrition space. 
I found a lot of passion in speaking to larger audiences and kind of creating a unique perspective on nutrition for the company that I was working for. And my story with alcohol goes all the way back to age 13 when I had my first drink. And I know a lot of people can relate to starting drinking young. And throughout my entire life, my teens, my 20s, my early 30s, I surrounded myself with people who would also drink. And for a long time, I was kind of on this mission to prove that you could drink alcohol and also be healthy. We believed for a while that there were these studies that said, you know, a little bit of alcohol wasn't so bad. And because I was friends with and surrounded myself with people who were drinking regularly, it didn't seem off. It didn't seem like there was a problem. It didn't necessarily seem like it was something that I could or wanted to change. I identify myself as being a heavy drinker, you know, again, all throughout the 20s and early 30s. And what happened to me is something that happened to many people, which is during the pandemic, we started to increase our alcohol intake. We were isolated. We were working from home. Our routines were different. Our stress levels were different. And I like to liken it as if you had a pot on the back of the stove kind of simmering. The pandemic really took that pot, which is our alcohol use, and really cranked up the heat, right? So now the pot is starting to boil over. And the last probably year to six months of my drinking, I found myself drinking six to seven days a week. I was not just having one or two drinks a day. I was getting to a bottle of wine a night and some days even more. For a long time, I felt like I was living a double life because I'm this doctor of nutrition. I'm heavily educated in you know, the body's metabolism and how certain toxins can affect our system. And I really got to a point where alcohol was no longer serving me. It was affecting my emotions, my mood. I was having really extreme anxiety. I was having elevated liver enzymes and a lot of other symptoms that were absolutely related to my alcohol use. And I like to share this depth because I think there are a lot of women out there who experience a similar path that they maybe started drinking young or that they are in a relationship where alcohol is very prominent or in friendships where alcohol is very prominent. And unfortunately, alcohol can sneak up on us, right? And what we know now is that you don't necessarily have to have a genetic disposition or predisposition towards developing an alcohol use problem, but because of the way that alcohol affects the brain and changes the brain neurochemistry, anyone who puts enough alcohol into their system can develop that dependency. And so it's really important to acknowledge that and know that if you are listening and, and you experience, you know, maybe you don't drink every day or even every other day, but you're feeling like alcohol is affecting your life in some way. It's definitely worth exploring a sober or sober curious lifestyle. And once I got sober a few months into my journey, I had actually previously authored a textbook chapter on nutrition and supplementation for substance use disorders, ironically. And I used some of those principles and supplements and dietary changes to support my own journey. 
And about three months in, I decided that I wanted to write a book on it. And I found an agent and received a publishing deal earlier this year. And from there, things really started to take off. So it's really exciting for me to be able to not only use my deep knowledge and expertise of nutrition and of the body, but marry that with something that I feel really passionately about not only from my own experience, but from the people that I now work with who are using nutrition to support changing their relationship with alcohol. Okay. That just brings up so many things. First of all, I was thinking about this as you were talking. I also started drinking at 13 and I come from Antigua in the Caribbean and it's a culture where everyone drinks. There are no alcoholics. (laughs) It's basically kind of how it is. And, you know, it's one of those things where you drink and drive. I mean, it's just totally acceptable. You know, there really aren't any rules around drinking. And so we all drank at a really young age. And again, it was not a big deal. And, you know, there's a lot of alcoholism in my family. And it's not really something that is addressed or really even talked about. It has caused a lot of problems. You know, I was thinking about what you were saying about the pandemic and all of that. And I know that that's sort of like, put everything on warp speed in this really strange way. But like what I was thinking about before coming to this interview was the cultural narrative concerning women and alcohol, that we basically just need it to get through life. And obviously this is evidenced by the trend of rewarding ourselves at the end of a long day of work or parenting or both, you know, with a glass or two or three or maybe even the bottle of wine, like you were talking about. And we see that in the movies, we see it on TV shows, we see it in all the memes, when talking about mommy juice. I mean, it is a completely acceptable way for women to cope with like life's overwhelming and frustrating experiences. And, you know, I think there are just so many of those. And so is it possible to talk about the intrinsic part of culture that alcohol, you know, plays a role in? Absolutely. And it's something really fascinating because when you think back to the post-war era where women were starting to, I think, become a little bit in some ways more equal to men, there's some really interesting advertisements that I've pulled in the past that show you know, a woman drinking whiskey, for example, and saying, oh, she can drink like a man. Right. So there's this kind of interesting thing that happened previously where it was almost like if you want to be perceived in this kind of equal way, will you drink with the guys? Right. So I think there's a lot of, you know, it roots culturally back to the dawn of time. Right. People have been drinking since I think people have existed. And the thing that's really interesting to me from my experience is working with others. So I sit in the millennial category and the millennials are really heavy drinkers. A lot of us started drinking really young. We, uh, I think one of the mind blowing awarenesses I had was how TV and reality TV in particular that started picking up maybe more in the early 2000s, things like the real world and Jersey Shore and all of these things portraying a positive use of alcohol, right? That, oh, it's adult-like behavior. These people are going out and getting wasted. And not that it really looks pretty, but it's what people do, right? It's what kind of looks cool and is something that we want to achieve. And that's happening more and more now with social media too. Because as you mentioned, there's tons of memes about being hungover and 
I used to follow a lot of those accounts in my heavy drinking days because it made me feel like I was not doing something wrong, right? I was not the only one who was hungover all the time. I was not the only one who, you know, made a drunken mistake. And when I decided to change my drinking behaviors, one of the things that I had to do was suss through not only social media, but my emails, my TV that I was watching, all of the ways that alcohol kind of has this sneaky way to invade our space. And they market well. And there's a great book called Quit Like a Woman, written by Holly Whitaker a few years back. And she speaks a lot about this similar topic of alcohol being a feminist issue and how there's a good chance that in several years we'll look back at alcohol advertising the way we look back at tobacco advertising. Doctors smoke camels, right? And doctors would be in the advertisements with a cigarette in their hand. And now we look at that and cringe, right? Right. And so look at what we're doing when we're showcasing alcohol. It's you know, people having happy times, celebrating, everyone's good looking, you know, they look like they're rich and their hair is well done and their outfits are nice. And so there's this perception that alcohol makes us, for lack of a better word, cool. You know, it makes us able to be that less stressed, less naggy woman, if you will, that's, you know, complaining to her husband to empty the dishwasher. Right. And so I think there's so many ways that this kind of invades our lifestyle. And I would challenge you if you're listening to, to start to pick up on that, see where on social media it's popping up or where on a TV ad or on which TV show, because it really is interesting how much that affects our choices when it comes to alcohol. And it makes so much sense, right? We all want to be part of the cool kids club. (laughs) Totally. I mean, I think back to being a teenager and I wanted to be part of that crew. And so, of course, drinking was a big deal. Can we talk about that then? Like, how does alcohol create this craving cycle in the brain? Because I think that there's a lot of shame and guilt and self-blame around the fact that whether it's, you know, sugar, nicotine, alcohol, whatever any addictive substance. So there's like this moral failing on our part, right? When we can't slow down or stop completely. So I'd really love to go into the physiological impact of alcohol and like, how does it create that vicious cycle of cravings in your brain? Yeah. So this is a great question. And this is where a lot of my work is framed around. And I speak a lot about these three key systems that can play a role in how and why we use alcohol on a regular basis. One of them is our blood sugar, our endocrine system, which I know we'll talk more about hormones. The second is our gut. And that is a really popular topic nowadays. And a lot of really interesting research has come out over the last few years on how alcohol affects the gut microbiome and contributes to inflammation and all of that affecting other parts of the body. And then lastly is the brain. And I'll start there because, as you mentioned, there is this cycle of addiction that in some ways does start in the brain. The brain is kind of the main 
root, if you will, of these cravings, these desires, and also the habit, the habitual nature of what we're doing. So alcohol will affect several of our neurotransmitters, dopamine being one in particular, that a lot of us associate with that reward, with that feel good, with that rush of kind of energy and fun, if you will. Now, alcohol releases a very high amount of dopamine when we take it into our system. Other substances that do that are things like drugs, like sugar, for example, but also in lower amounts, dopamine is released when we are in nature, when we are spending time with loved ones, when we're doing other forms of pleasurable experiences that aren't necessarily giving us these like extreme dopamine hits. We become addicted to that dopamine hit. And we become addicted to that because essentially what happens after we have that kind of hit, we have a decrease of dopamine below baseline, right? So there's some really interesting research and a great book called Dopamine Nation that was published, I believe, last year. And she talks a lot about how the dopamine reward system happens in particular with alcohol. But dopamine is only one of our body's feel-good hormones. We also have things like serotonin, which most of us associate with a positive mood. So, you know, feeling happy, not feeling depressed. And then there's also a few others that aren't really spoken about too frequently. One of them being GABA, G-A-B-A, and the other being glutamate. And one of the things that alcohol does to these two hormones in particular is it increases GABA, which is a relaxing neurotransmitter. It helps us calm down. It helps us feel relaxed, feel relief. And it also decreases glutamate, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter. So it basically is like we're driving in the car down the road. And if you're going to drink alcohol, let's think of it as you're going to slam on the gas, right? And you're going to start speeding down the road. When we drink alcohol, what happens is we will take our foot off of the gas and put it on the brake, right? So we get these kind of initial hits of this feel good these kind of high energy moments that we get with alcohol. And then that's followed by a relief or relaxation. So when we're having these changes, and this is deep in the biochemistry, but the main takeaway here is that when we do these things on a regular basis, our brain trains itself to follow these types of systems. It knows or it expects these hits of dopamine. It knows or it expects this increase of GABA. So it almost becomes sluggish in the creation or the development of its own. In addition to that, and again, not to dive too much deeper into that area, but nutrients, things like our B vitamins, our vitamin D, vitamin C, magnesium, for example, are all really important in the natural development of these neurotransmitters. And they're also the nutrients that are depleted when we drink heavily. So it really creates this vicious cycle of these imbalanced neurotransmitters or this imbalanced brain chemistry that to your point, Nicole, is it's not about us morally failing. It's not about us being, oh my gosh, I'm an alcoholic, for example. Right. And the way that I like to use nutrition on this is to help people understand that it's not necessarily about willpower. Our brain and our bodies are very, very intelligent and strong at picking up on these types of reward pathways. 
And so it's not necessarily you, it's the alcohol that's contributing to that. Okay. That was amazing. And I feel like that's going to help so many women who are listening feel so much better about their own issues around this. Because like you said, there's like this physiological urge to get that dopamine hit. And it makes so much sense. It's like any addictive thing, just thinking about like porn and all this other stuff and having these huge dopamine hits. So it's like, it's one of those things that I think about a lot because it's just not natural, so to speak, because as you said earlier, we get these small dopamine hits from being out in nature and hugging someone we love and all of these other things. And those are then, I feel like just superseded by like these massive dopamine hits we get from these things that we wouldn't normally get. And that's often why when we try to change these behaviors, it's like, I don't want to go outside and go in nature, right? Like that's not really (laughs) fun because we're so used to this extreme hit of pleasure. So it is not necessarily about us and our, you know, ability to say yes or say no, or, you know, not having the willpower to only have one glass. It is deeply ingrained in our biology as to why that is happening when we begin to drink. Yes. Oh, for sure. You know, it's something I was thinking about when you were talking as well, coming back to the cultural side of things. I mean, I actually don't really drink at all. Like I drink once in a while and probably because I feel terrible after I drink. (laughs) So I have this built-in mechanism already to stop me from drinking too much. But every time, you know, I go to a restaurant or I say that I'm not having a drink, there's so much peer pressure around you as well, from the person who's serving you at the restaurant to your friends, to your family. It's exhausting. And I feel like so many of us just cave just to not have to hear about it because it creates this feeling of, gosh, should I be doing this? And it just is so challenging, I think, to navigate that as well. Would you agree? Absolutely. And I have an online network. It's called the Functional Sobriety Network. And a lot of my clients in there share their challenges with this in particular, because again, we typically have surrounded ourselves with other people that drink. And we stay in those social circles, especially in the early days of changing our habits, because these are our friends. These are the people that we know and we have previously spent time with. A lot of my clients, I suggest to them, if they're not ready to have that conversation, to just put their drink in a tumbler or use a koozie on a seltzer can instead of having a beer so that you can avoid some of those conversations And on one of our calls last night with my group, one of the gals actually said, and she's just about 100 days sober, that she recognizes a few of the friends that don't necessarily go deeper or go beyond that alcohol relationship. So I think we really start to learn once we get a little bit more clarity and a little bit of distance from those alcohol or those drinking behaviors that we go, oh, okay, this is how I spend my free time. When I got sober, someone asked me what I do for fun. I was like, I literally have no idea. Like, I don't know. Fun was drinking or sitting at a bar. And so you leave the bar and you go, oh, wow, there's this whole big world out here. And now I've got time that I'm not spending drunk or hungover that I can go out and explore and try new things and meet new people. Totally. I mean, it makes so much sense. I feel like you suddenly open up to all these potential opportunities. And I was just thinking about that with the girl in your group who was saying that, you know, this is who she hangs out with. And it requires a massive change, right? Like it really requires you to make 
not only this physical change, but then your whole life starts to change. And I, I do really think a lot about when someone seems triggered that I'm not having a drink, that's really not about me, it's about them and what they're feeling around their own drinking habits. I feel like there's yeah. that too. And that can feel really hard. Absolutely. And I think it causes people to reflect and go, mm, am I doing something wrong? Or are they trying to say something about me? Or, you know, they begin to feel uncomfortable. And I think I say this with love and honesty, but misery loves company, right? We want to be, if we're kind of stuck in that phase, we want people to be stuck in it with us so that we don't feel so bad. But right. community is one of the really big, important pieces of anytime you're looking to change your relationship with alcohol or cut back. And it's actually part of the reason why communities like Alcoholics Anonymous are very successful. Some of the research that has been done on that, which the benefit of Alcoholics Anonymous or AA is actually higher or increased rates of success with sobriety over other types of therapies. And part of the reason why that is suggested is because you make new friends, you're surrounded by people that you can relate to. There are these very open and honest rooms. I think one of the big challenges is when we start to say to ourselves, hmm, maybe I do want to cut back or maybe I do want to try quitting and see what I feel like, see how my energy is, see how my hormones are, which we're going to get to. And through this feeling like we're trapped in those social situations can be a really big thing that impedes us. And so part of the reason why I launched a community was because there's no shortage of people that are looking for others that they can relate to. And when they can find other people who are struggling like they are, or, you know, have a partner who is still drinking like another person in the group, there's really a lot of support that we find. And education from other people and their experiences in changing their behaviors too. Totally. I feel like that it is. It's about being accepted into a community and being part of the tribe. And that's really, really important for all of us. And I really like that. I would love for us to come back to that physiological piece. So what's going on with our hormones? <laughs> what is alcohol actually doing to our hormones? I know that's like the big question in everybody's minds. Yeah. So as we mentioned before we spoke about the brain, there's these other two systems that I focus on biochemically with alcohol use and really how it affects the body in its entirety, hormones included. And the gut, let's start by talking with the gut because that's a really popular topic. And, you know, everyone is heard of a probiotic as maybe taking a probiotic, maybe you feel benefit or don't. But we all know now that the gut plays much more important of a role in the body than just supporting digestion. It is now known to contribute to things like hormone imbalances and headaches and physical pain and thyroid conditions, autoimmune disease, kind of you name it, and the gut can be linked back to it. And the liver is also part of not necessarily the gut, but part of the digestive system. And so I often kind of think of these two organ systems as separate but similar in the fact that our gut has very key changes that will happen with heavy alcohol use. The science is showing that there is dysbiosis or an imbalance in that good and bad bacteria in the gut. 
some particular strains of bacteria that can overgrow actually feed off of alcohol. And so in a similar way that when we have bugs in the gut that feed off of sugar and carbohydrates, it causes cravings. Our body is again, sending these biological signals that say, send in more alcohol because we want that as our food, right? Alcohol also is very deleterious to the lining of the gut and can be a big trigger for intestinal permeability or what we also like to call leaky gut. Now that can be really important in preventing against autoimmune disease and inflammation throughout the body. And so we really, really don't want to have this kind of leaky gut and this affected immune system, if you will. The liver, on the other hand, is one of the main organs that processes alcohol. So a lot of us know, okay, the liver, yes, alcohol, liver, bad combination, right? But many people don't really know all the things that the liver does. So yes, it is a filter and it eliminates toxins from the body, but it is the main organ that helps to metabolize and turn over alcohol. And the way that it does that is through essentially creating these different compounds. It kind of goes through a few changes in the body, and then it's metabolized and removed through the body in our urine or our stool. However, that process can really, really challenge all of the other important things that the liver does. So because alcohol is a toxin and it's a damaging product in the body to manage, the body and the liver will kind of deprioritize normal functions like hormone regulation, like metabolism of estrogen metabolites, like the elimination of cholesterol from the system. And so what we end up having is the more that we have alcohol, the less our body and our liver are focusing on that hormone management piece. Because the gut is also affected and the gut is what eliminates the excess hormones from our system, we can also have reabsorption of those estrogen metabolites or byproducts that create really a situation of estrogen dominance. And the last thing that I'll note on that is aside from the gut and the liver, we have really severe impacts that alcohol has on our blood sugar and our endocrine system. So this is going to impact things like our cravings. It's going to impact things like, again, regular production of sex hormones, of stress hormones, of thyroid hormones. And so we really have this kind of perfect storm where we're creating these imbalances in hormonal production and hormonal metabolism. And then we're not able to kind of get that out of the system. And so it is something that seems quite disconnected when we think about oh, alcohol and hormones. How do these two things affect each other? But the reality is that if you are drinking on a regular basis, even if that's a few days a week, a few drinks a day, and you have hormone-related symptoms, there's absolutely a way in which those two things are linked. Thank you so much. That was so incredibly descriptive and I think will be so helpful for anyone who is struggling and feeling like their hormones are completely out of whack and maybe overlooking the fact that alcohol might be playing a role in that. 
I was thinking as you were talking about the fact that so many of us tend to drink in the late afternoon, like we were saying at the end of the day, I feel like there's a point in the day for most people that's like a signal. And I always say it's the time when blood sugar is dropping combined with you wrapping up that long work day. And you're kind of like, I need something, right? I need a reprieve. I need something to close this day out. And I was thinking about like the fact that there is a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression in our society, exponentially more in the last couple of years. And there's also a lot of sleeplessness, particularly as you get into your late 30s and into your 40s and beyond. And I would love for us to just talk a little bit about how alcohol, particularly later in the day, is contributing to all of this. Yeah. So you bring up a great point, Nicole. And one of the big things that I speak about kind of on my more public platforms on social media is really simple tips that you can use to kind of support and manage cravings, to support these different organ systems that might be affected by alcohol use, but also to really identify a new way of using food as part of that stress management journey. And As you mentioned with blood sugar, because alcohol does have a significant link with blood sugar, it not only contributes sugar and carbs through the beverage, but it also has an effect on the release of certain hormones from the liver. So essentially will cause low blood sugar situations when we are drinking it on a regular basis. When we dip into that low blood sugar, that can manifest for many people as sugar and carb cravings, right? Because we need this kind of quick pick-me-up. But for people who are drinking alcohol on a regular basis, that is also when an alcohol craving is going to kick in. So oftentimes at that 5 p.m. time of day, especially if we maybe hadn't eaten lunch in five or six hours, and maybe the only thing we ate all afternoon was a candy bar to give us a quick pick-me-up during the afternoon. And now all of a sudden, we're coming home and our willpower's off, right? Our biological willpower is off. And so one of the suggestions that I give is strategically using protein throughout the day in order to stabilize your blood sugar. It's one of the most basic nutritional practices to think about protein to balance blood sugar and to support management of cravings and increase satiety. But that in its most basic sense can actually have a really, really big impact on those cravings. So I'm always suggesting to my clients, to people that I'm working with, to always have an afternoon snack. You never really want to go more than three or four hours with a good source of protein and some good fiber. And a lot of times when people do get home and they have that kind of witching hour, when it becomes really difficult, they can incorporate a snack and they'll notice that those cravings go away. So I'm a big fan of making suggestions like things like making a cheese plate, like making something a little more exciting and fun. You know, it doesn't have to be a handful of nuts and, you know, an apple, right? Because I think many of us are kind of over those types of snacks, or we find that those things become tedious and aren't necessarily treats. But so that can not only support you at that 5 p.m. time, but also going into the remainder of the evening, which is where people generally that kind of that second point in time where people start to get triggered around dinner time or after dinner. 
Yes. And I think that that is one of the things that I would say most women struggle with is, you know, how do I even figure out what I do with this time? Like, Mm -hmm. how do I pass this time without feeling these incessant cravings? So are there other things that we can also be doing or, you know, alcohol free ways, I suppose you could say, to pass this time that we would typically spend drinking? Yeah, it's all about creating and training your body and brain on new habits, right? So for some people, they go out and take a walk when they get home from work, get some fresh air, you know, get a little bit of exercise. Some people I suggest if they used to be a morning exerciser, well, maybe that gets moved to the afternoon because that time is actually more supportive of beating that craving time. There's also, you know, I think, In general, as I mentioned to you, I didn't know what fun was when I was drinking or in my early days post-drinking. And I think it's a lot about trying different things. It's removing yourself from that triggering environment. So if it's, you know, standing at the kitchen counter and popping open the bottle at 5 p.m., does that mean you're going to take a half an hour and go meditate or you're going to go listen to a podcast or pick up a book and read for 30 minutes? And I can already hear the scoffs, right? Because it's like, well, I'd rather just like have the glass of wine, way more fun. I promise you, and trust me, I was in this situation very, very deep in unhealthy relationship with alcohol. And I didn't think I would make it through a couple of days, let alone over 16 months of sobriety that I have today. And we learn, our body adjusts, we learn, and we start to feel things so much more positively that you start looking forward to that 30 minutes of reading the book. You start looking forward to that outdoor walk because it becomes part of the way that you manage your stress and support your lifestyle. So it can really be anything. It could be, you know, if you're a painter doing some artistic work, creative work is a really great way to kind of relax your mind and distract some of those stressful thoughts. And so it's really up to you, the listener, to decide what that might be. But I think if you're going to sit in the kitchen and stare at the counter where you normally sit and have your glass of wine, of course, it's going to be a little bit harder to do that. Yeah, I would say it's quite the process of rediscovering who you are, right? And what brings you joy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And there are so many great books. So I know we mentioned Holly Whitaker's Quit Like a Woman. There's a lot of other books in the sobriety space. They call them quit lit. Oh my God, that's hilarious. I'm actually working on a quit lit book myself right now on nutrition and how to use nutrition to change your relationship with alcohol. And in my early days, I read a lot of those books. I listened to a lot of podcasts like these to just kind of keep it front and center. And getting involved in a community again, too, is, you know, maybe something like the Functional Sobriety Network. At 5 p.m., you sign on for 30 minutes and read through a couple of posts or read a blog or chat with someone in the group. And that's the way that you kind of check in and gain a little bit of accountability, too. Yeah, it makes so much sense. Congratulations, by the way, on your book. You. It's going to be so exciting. We'll have you back on the podcast for sure we'll to love talk to. more about this and what you share in the book, because I just feel like we need more resources like this. And I love that you shared some resources and ideas for women who are going through this, because it can just feel really lonely, right? Self-development is hard. Personal growth is really hard. And when you're doing this, 
you really want to have some sort of accountability and someone who's on your side and like really motivating you. Yeah, it's important to have that positive feedback and that kind of rah-rah cheerleader support because it is, it's very hard. It's very lonely. I think a lot of us feel like we're alone in the way that we do drink and we feel like it's shameful or we're not ready to open up about it. But once we do, there's a really big relief when we start to say, okay, maybe I am going to make a change. And I think it takes a lot of the weight off of our back of something that maybe we've been thinking about doing for a long time. The world today is very primed for sobriety. We've got a booming non-alcoholic beverage industry. Every restaurant I've gone to in the tri-state area lately has mocktails or non-alcoholic drink options. We have access to these types of online resources, these types of books and podcasts. And I think there's no better time than now to explore it. And it doesn't mean you have to quit drinking forever. I often suggest trying three weeks or trying a month alcohol-free. We just came off of sober October, and a lot of people do dry January. And these can just be great kind of exploratory phases to see how you feel without alcohol. You might find that you feel much more energized. You feel a bit more balance in your hormones. You feel more mental clarity, less anxiety, and all of those types of things, because alcohol can be one of the main contributors to those types of symptoms that we experience. Yeah. Those resources are amazing. I was actually thinking just now about the recent episode of the Andrew Huberman podcast I listened to. Mm -hmm. I mean, he really dug in there. I mean, it's kind of incredible how he's able to speak about really complex topics in an easy to understand way. And I have a number of friends who don't drink a lot, but they decided to stop drinking after that episode. Hopefully that's going to be the case after our episode too. Love it. But I mean, what he said was, you know, so profound. And I think he was talking about recent research, right? That has come out basically to say that any kind of alcohol is a poison, because I think that sometimes we think that red wine that's organic, biodynamic, all the things is the sort of like best option for us. And before we wrap up, I would really like to talk about like the different types of alcohol, because I feel like some people think, oh, well, that doesn't spike blood sugar, or that isn't as problematic, or I just do straight tequila, because it's keto or whatever the hell. <laughs> so I would right. love your thoughts on that, too. Right. So yes. And alcohol, the ethanol that makes up alcohol is a pure toxin. Right. It is a class one carcinogen. It's listed on a list of known to cause cancer, not probable or likely. It is known and researched to cause cancer. It's and on that's a list every of alcohol, right? That's every alcoholic beverage. That is the ethanol that makes a beverage alcoholic. Right. Right. So yes. Certain drinks are going to have sugar or not have sugar or more carbs or less carbs. And yeah, they might have maybe a more detrimental effect if you're going to drink something with a lot of sugar. But the fact is, we're still taking in the ethanol, right? So this blood sugar instability still occurs because of the way that the liver is affected. The nutrient depletion is still happening because you have ethanol increasing the need for more nutrients. You also have intestinal permeability and these changes to the gut that are happening because of the ethanol. 
So I know, I think we all want a reason to believe that we can do it, that we can enjoy it. And what I can share from my experience is that I never believed, I mean, I thought never in a million years would I quit drinking alcohol. You know, I had a heavy drinking pattern for a very long time. I was a big fan of that biodynamic organic red wine that I would, you know, excuse after excuse as to why it's okay. You know, unfortunately, those ones are also the bottles that are like $40 each and, you know, (laughs) great marketing there too. So as you mentioned on his podcast, the research that is from 2021, 2022, more recent, is now showing that any level of alcohol contributes to cardiovascular disease, contributes to elevations in cholesterol, increases in blood pressure. That's even at the one or two drinks per day recommendation. There's also more recent research supporting the fact that alcohol is also contributing to shrinkage in the brain matter. And so that affects memory and learning and cognition, setting us up for things like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease in the future. And another one that I like to point out, and I'll share because this is the period party, In 2021, there was some really interesting research around conception and fertility and how alcohol at any point in the cycle at a dose-dependent response, so the more alcohol, the worse the situation was in reducing the ability for not the actual conception, like the sperm to penetrate the egg, but for the egg to stick to the uterine lining in order to conceive. And so a lot of us think, you know, I can drink alcohol until I'm pregnant. But if you are someone who has been having trouble with fertility, with ovulation, cutting out alcohol can definitely be another thing that you can try before having to explore more invasive or costly methods. That is tremendously helpful information. And hopefully whoever's listening and thinking that they can drink up until, you know, the first, you know, when they get their pregnancy test, that's positive. They start to rethink that. So thank you. I feel like we could go on for hours with this because it is such a loaded topic, but I know you have really wonderful resources for anyone who's listening who might have a sticky or possibly, you know, even more challenging relationship with alcohol. Can you just share where people can find you and what you've got for them? Absolutely. And I'll just tell you too, if you're listening and you get that little pull in your gut, that that little bit of curiosity, follow that seed because there's a good chance that there's some good stuff on the other side of it. So you can learn more about me at my website is brookscheller.com. You can also find there links to my online network. I also have a few online courses that help guide you on using nutrition as part of your sober or sober curious journey. And I'm also on Instagram at drbrookscheller. And there I post a lot of those great tips and tricks and videos and great resources for everyone as well. But thank you so much for having me, Nicole. We could absolutely go on for hours, but we'll schedule a second podcast when the book comes out. Yes. Thank you so much. And we absolutely will. I can't wait for the book. I feel like it is so needed and I appreciate you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Brooke. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap. Be sure to join me for more Girl Talk Gone Menstrual in upcoming episodes and let me and my guests help you to get to know your period and your body better. 
In the meantime, if your hormones are screaming for more, check out my previous period party episodes. And of course, if you love what you hear, please take a moment to rate the podcast. And if you're looking for an even deeper dive into your hormone and period problems, go ahead and grab my book, Fix Your Period, by going to fixyourperiod.com. 